from Silicon Valley, the heart of startup land. It's Getting to Alpha, the show about creating innovative, compelling experiences that people love. And now, here's your host, game designer, entrepreneur, and startup coach, Amy Jo Kim. Welcome. I'm glad you're here. Jesse Shell is a constant source of inspiration. He's a game designer, passionate educator, studio leader, and he does it all with grace, humor, and deep insight into what makes people tick. Jesse's team is focused on transformational gaming, which leverages his passions and speaks to his love of collaboration. That's the part I like most about transformational games is game designers, game developers, they can't do it alone. Subject matter experts can't do it alone, but they get to come together and create this thing that none of them could have made alone that really makes a difference in people's lives. Come here, Jesse, reveal the magical roots of his lifelong fascination with transformative entertainment and learn the powerful techniques he and his team use to bring their games to life. So welcome, Jesse. Let's get started with a whirlwind tour of your background. How did you get into gaming and interactive media? And uh, how did, what series of experiences led you to the expertise that you have today? Gotcha. So, um, boy, games and entertainment have, have always interesting to me. I started programming games when I was maybe about 12 years old, but I'd started making kind of board and card games, you know, when I was even even younger than that. Uh, and it always been something of a hobby for me. I started getting interested in the idea of um, becoming a, a real life software engineer as I got into high school, but the idea of actually becoming a, a game programmer, game designer had never, that, that didn't even seem like it was a real possibility. I didn't know anybody had a job like that or, or, or anybody who knew anybody who had a job like that. It just, it, 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 it would have been like saying I'm going to become a movie star or something. Um, so I was focused on uh, just straight up software engineering, and I focused on artificial intelligence for a while, but I was always making games on the side. Then when I went to grad school, virtual reality was starting to come out, like 93, and I thought that was really interesting, so I started getting into that. And that ended up leading me uh, to the Disney Virtual Reality Studio, where I started out as a programmer, but gradually took on more and more design responsibilities. So that was where I got my real education in terms of entertainment and in terms of sort of game development and game design, because I was there for about seven years doing both interactive um, theme park attractions as well as massively multiplayer games for, for, for Disney. I worked on uh, Toontown Online. I was lead designer on that. And then I moved to Pittsburgh where I started uh, teaching at Carnegie Mellon University at the Entertainment Technology Center, teaching game design there. And that's what led me to write the book, The, the Art of Game Design. And in parallel with that, I started my own studio, Shell Games, which I guess has been 10, 11 years now, something like that, uh, that I've been doing that. And have been we've grown it from, I guess we started with four or five people. Now we have uh, 100 people mostly focused on educational and transformational games. We do about two-thirds of those and one-third entertainment games. So a lot of variety in uh, the sorts of projects I've worked on. Tell us what you mean by transformational games. Yeah, transformational games is uh, the, the phrase that, that we like to use um, 
that's meant to encompass both educational games, but also games that are designed to change the player in other ways. Some people use the phrase serious games. I've never been a, a fan of that because it makes it sound like the game's, like, it, like if someone accidentally had fun playing your game, that that would be bad. And then that's, of course, not what anybody means. Um, we, we, the idea of a transformational game is a game designed to change the player. That might be, I'm, I'm trying to change their knowledge. I, I want them to know certain things, so I'll have them play the game. But it also might be, I'm trying to change a habit that they, they have. Um, that's, that, that would be a kind of uh, transformation. Um, or maybe I'm trying to change their attitude about something. So all of that kind of falls within the, 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 the realm of, of transformational. So that, that's a phrase we like to use. You also mentioned The Art of Game Design, your book, which is now in its second edition, correct? Yep. So what's the creation story of that? What sparked you to actually sit down and put that into the world? Yeah, so boy, it's kind of a long, uh, boy, that, that, that book was a long time in coming. Um, I've always been interested in just entertainment, what makes entertainment work, the psychology of entertainment. Uh, an aspect of my background that I didn't talk about was I used to be uh, a juggler and a street performer. I worked my way through high school and college uh, doing that stuff, and it actually helped me a great deal as as I moved into kind of the realm of Disney and working in their theme parks and even just in games because the, the, those were experiences for me making like real entertainment and dealing with real audiences on a on a day to day basis and. Um, kind of a breakthrough book for me was a book called Magic and Showmanship by a guy named Henning Nelms, uh, written probably in the in the fifties. Where it's even though it's ostensibly about magic, it's really about like what is entertainment and how does entertainment work. And that that book really got me thinking. And when I was at Disney, I started writing um, various articles and things about the nature of entertainment, what are interest curves and how do those work and how does interactive entertainment work and how do you how do you how do you tell a great story but still keep things interactive. So I started writing bits and pieces and I'd been working on this project that I'd called the Understanding Entertainment Project, kind of riffing off of the Understanding Comics um, text by uh, Scott McCloud. And I ended up talking to a publisher about it and he's like, nobody's going to want to buy a book called understanding entertainment no one cares about that but game design is really hot and you teach a course in game design uh do you think you could write a book about game design the more i thought about it i'm like you know it's all the same stuff i mean so uh that's that's kind of what got it rolling so the uh, art of game design is very much based off of a lot of these things i kind of learned over this this long period um, but a lot of it really congealed when i started teaching a game design class at carnegie mellon so some of what's in the book comes out of there. Um, the central premise of the book is the good game design happens by looking at your game from many points of view, uh, which in the book I call lenses. And lenses are just simple questions that you ask yourself about your game. And in the, in the book, I, I enumerate uh, over 100 lenses uh, that are different ways you can look at your game in order to make it great. Fantastic. So you've taught since then many, many students, and you've worked yep. with training up young game designers who've joined your company. As you mentioned, it's grown from just a handful to now a 100 strong. Yep. What are some of the most common mistakes that you see 
people, particularly first-time entrepreneurs or first-time game designers making when they're creating and testing the very early versions of their games? Oh, boy, boy, boy. There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of common uh, mistakes, definitely. Wow. So it's, 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 kind, it's sort of different. So it's, it's interesting. The mistakes students make end up being really different than the mistakes entrepreneurs tend to make. And I think that's because they're often approaching things very differently from each other. Um, when it comes to entrepreneurs, I think a lot of times one of the most common mistakes is this sort of notion that game development is simple, um, that there's some simple formula that you follow and that you're going to have a guaranteed fun, guaranteed successful game. Um, and if only they had that formula, then they'd be all set. That's, that's definitely one. And another huge one for, the, for entrepreneurs is the notion of um, all I need is a great game design and then someone will code it and then I'm in great shape. When the truth is uh, development must be very iterative. You've, things must be kind of played into existence. Um, and a lot, of, a lot of people don't, they're not ready to plan for that. They don't understand the realities of that. And, and then the worst part is when they, when they start to run into that, they feel like they must be doing everything wrong because it's, it wasn't good right out of the gate when, when really n- nothing ever is. And that's just how these things go. You have a lot of, yeah, you there's a lot of mistakes and iterations and changes that are, are going to happen. So following on that point, what do you do in your classes and in your studio to implement the powerful side of that, the habit of early, quick iteration, failing fast, learning a lot from it, etc. How do you actually make that happen? Well, a big part of it is just the process that you use when you when you plan things out. You know, you you need to plan for that iteration. We we very intentionally uh, plan pre-production phases, which are all about getting as many of the kind of early experiments out of the way as possible. We very much use agile development processes, which allow you to change gears um, midstream and kind of make big changes. We're big believers in what I call the 50% rule, which is that if you have a fixed schedule, as many of us often must have, you know, you've got, you've got eight months or you've got $400,000 or whatever you've got, um, halfway through your schedule, you should have all of the main game features functioning so that you, in your second half, you can spend time making them great. And uh, so we, we try and be disciplined about, about those sorts of things. And, and that really helps you kind of get to the right, uh, get to the right place. And of course, constant playtesting. So that's fascinating. Um, so you're really talking about the journey from pre-production, early experiments, what some people might call an MVP even, um, to leaving a large chunk of time for polish and integration. I would make a, just to, not to, uh, not to harp on details, but I would make a very strong distinction between pre-production and an MVP. Great. Let's uh, make that distinction really clear. Yeah, because I mean, typically MVP, you're talking about minimum viable product. And for, for me, that refers to the minimum viable product you could actually put out in the world and have people play and get meaningful feedback about that. 
Uh, pre pre-production, when the way we use that phrase is is very different. Pre-production is you're doing internal tests in order to prove to yourself that this concept could actually maybe work. Um, and so at the the idea is at the end of pre-production, you have a pretty good idea of how long it will actually take to make this game. Um, and uh, and you've, you've answered a lot of the early, early questions. So pre-production, so, but it, whereas MVP would be, from my point of view, the first fieldable um, version of a game that you'd have. Right. So that's purely terminology. Some people use MVP to mean a fake landing page. You know, people use that word in really different ways. Yeah. It's and, true. and the reality is it's a continuum, right? It's yes, not like well, this clear yeah. thing. But, um, but just to dig a little deeper into what you're talking about during pre-production, during these experiments, do you do any play testing of small pieces or ideas of the game on your target audience? Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, so let's talk about that because I think I may be using, I talk about early MVPs that are, they can even be sketches or interactive prototypes that can, that you specifically test not just on your internal team and your investors, but also on your early adopter target audience. And that's one of the things that I find people have a hard time getting their minds around because they don't want to show early stuff to who they think of as their customers. So how do you do that with your focus on educational transformational games? What um, practices and hacks have you evolved to get some of that crucial early feedback from your audience? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And it's, it's a difficult thing that everybody has to wrestle with. Right. Um, so it happens in different ways. Partly, I think it happens through for you, you can do it through simple conversations with your target audience. I remember when we created Pixie Hollow, which was a massively multiplayer game for girls based on the based on Tinkerbell. Um, we had a whole design worked out that we felt pretty good about. And we said, yeah, before we get into any production, though, we should let's spend some time talking to girls and see how they feel about it. But we didn't start by just saying, here's what we're thinking. We started out by just asking them really simple questions. Questions like, um, you know, would, do, you, do you think you would like to be a fairy? And we got an enthusiastic, yes. Okay, that's good. That's what you want to hear. And if you were a fairy, what, what would you do? And we thought we knew what the answers were going to be, and we were wrong. The answer was fly. And we hadn't been thinking about that because we'd been really focused on like the Tinkerbell movie where Tinkerbell does a lot of things, and she does some flying, but flying isn't prominently featured. And so we hadn't been thinking about flying, but flying was like really central with the girls uh, we talked to, and we started talking to more and more girls, and like, yeah, wow, they really expect that. And that wasn't in our plan at all. We immediately changed our plan. And we made it so that you're flying every second of, of the game. Um, so early conversations can be really important, and those can go a long way. And what, then, let me just yeah. one thing. Not just early conversations. Early conversations that are testing in a real way, looking for real answers, your fundamental premise. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly Not right. testing like side things, the fundamental premise. Yeah, right. absolutely. Because if your fundamental premise is wrong, what are you what are you doing? Right. All that detail, all that beautiful design around the detail is for naught. Yeah, because the 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 stuff on the edges, like you can change that later. But like the 
the, the central activity, the main loop of the game, like if you get that wrong, like what do you stop? You know, what are you, what are you doing? Right. Um, so yeah, so early conversations are one way. But then in other ways, you just, you, you learn to couch your early unfinished prototypes in a way that you can get useful feedback. Ooh, tell us more. Right, well, um, it's, it can, it's, it's a tricky bit of business, right? Because... Uh, people, you know, artwork really influences people. And if I give you something with like really rough, unfinished artwork, I'm not going to get the best feedback. But you as a designer, you know that. And one of the rules that we know is if, if my game's really ugly and it's still fun, I'm in really good shape. So it's okay to test things that don't look very good, but have like the right play mechanics. And one of the advantages you actually have a lot of benefits when you work with kids because kids have a good imagination and adults have a bad one. Um, So you can ask kids to imagine that things were different than they are, but adults have a harder time doing that. Um, The other good thing is if you bring people really rough prototypes that are unfinished, they're more likely to give you honest feedback. If you give somebody something really polished, they're less likely to tell you the truth about how they feel about it because they feel like it's already done and so that their feedback's not going to matter. But if you bring a thing that's all kind of janky and, and broken and a lot of rough edges, they'll tell you the truth about what they like and don't like about it. That's a golden nugget. So uh, let's talk tools for a minute and process. Uh, let's say somebody is eager to follow through on that advice and they want to do it. What are some of your favorite prototyping tools? Do you just sketch stuff up and put in a slideshow? Do you use Unity? You know, like... What do you guys do for really rough mock-ups that you want to get that early feedback on? Everything is different. Every project is different. It totally depends. Uh, for 2D games, we will sometimes use PowerPoint a little bit. You can kind of um, mock up what the game is going to look and feel like a little bit in, in PowerPoint. We'll do a little bit of that. But usually, we do like to just code the thing up in whatever you know, in, in whatever system it's ultimately going to be implemented in so that we can kind of get traction sort of moving that direction. But a lot of that comes down to getting artists and programmers who are used to that kind of rapid prototyping um, because not everybody is uh, optimized for rapid prototyping. It's a very different way to work where you have to be okay with certain things being sloppy because... Uh, a lot of it may get thrown away, and and you want to answer the the idea with prototyping is every prototype is designed to answer a question. The faster it can answer that question, the better a prototype it is. Even if it's really an ugly prototype, if it answers your question, um, then it's that it, it's the it's the best one possible. Fantastic! So that's a really concrete tip for entrepreneurs who want to do smart prototyping is. Make sure your prototype is designed to answer a specific question as quickly as possible. Yeah, definitely. So do you have any other tips on iteration is really a theme throughout? And I'm thrilled to hear it because that's been my experience as well, you know, both as a game and product designer, is that it might be 5% design up front, but iteration is where all the magic happens. Right. So what are some of your other tips for people that want to do this right? Eager young entrepreneurs. Well, I definitely believe in the what we call the rule of the loop. The the more iterations you do, the better it's going to be. And that's as, it's as simple as that. And anything you can do to optimize the 
the you know, shorten the duration of those iterations, the better your thing's going to be. And that isn't the way people usually think. Um, so when you choose your tools, you want to choose tools that let you change things a lot and change things frequently. If you can do multiple iterations in a day or in an hour, that's, that's, that's much better. The other idea that people often forget about, they get so focused on we're going to build this thing they forget about the idea that they could do multiple prototypes in parallel. You could perhaps do, maybe you're going to do an art prototype purely uh, as a PowerPoint while you do kind of a, a performance prototype, um, you know, that, that's, that's maybe coded up in Unity. And then you have like a totally separate gameplay prototype that maybe somebody coded up in Flash. And you could have three different people working on those three different things totally in parallel on three totally different bases, but they're answering parallel questions so that later you can kind of put it all together. So parallelize uh, your prototyping is, is a definitely a good tip. Well, if your pre-production goal is to know how long it's going to take you to build the game, that seems like a really good thing to do. Yeah. So... Your specialty, as you said earlier, is transformational games, particularly in education. Um, can you share with us some of what you've learned about doing educational games, particularly ones for kids, versus just the more general world of game design? Yeah, I mean, uh, in a lot of ways, transformational games are not that different than regular games. It's just much harder. Because in when you do entertainment games, it's important that they be engaging and that they, they, they be fun and that they get people coming back and they get people excited. And then with, when you get into transformational games, you have to do all of those things and you have to really change the way a person looks or thinks or what they know. Or, um, and, and so that's, that's pretty tough. One of the big things with uh, transformational games is subject matter experts. Because it's really they, the um, the business of educating somebody is 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 really deep and complicated. So even if you want to make something as simple as hey, we're going to make a game about algebra, uh, it's not enough for you to know some algebra. You want to you you need to have someone who's an expert on algebra, and even that's not enough. You need someone who is an expert on the best ways for people to learn algebra. What are the hangups? that people have because when you're creating an educational game it's kind of the idea is the the game is kind of an alternative there's already a way to learn algebra but there must be something wrong with it because we are people are asking for better and more engaging ways so one of the, it's really important to get yourself back to the question of what problem am i really solving and you need the help of the subject matter experts in order to understand that so that you can, you can, you know that you're solving a real legitimate problem. So many entrepreneurs, they, they get all excited about some concept they have and it's an exciting idea to them, but it's not actually solving a real problem. And as a result, the, uh, the, the you know, the product doesn't really get much of a reception. So you have to find a real problem focus on that real problem and then use best of class expertise about how that, about getting that problem solved. Um, and that's the part I like most about transformational games is 
uh, game designers, game developers, they can't do it alone. Subject matter experts can't do it alone, but they get to come together and create this thing that none of them could have made alone that really makes a difference in people's lives. So what is your experience with or thoughts about adaptive learning techniques within that world? When you say adaptive learning, tell me more about what you mean. Well, it's a, a very popular, um, it's very popular among educational gaming startups, at least the ones I'm talking to. And adaptive learning means, like, say, Khan Academy does it in a light way. It means that the system, you can interact with the system, and it will um, adapt the challenges that it feeds to you based on what you've done so far. And so on the one hand, you could say, well, every good learning game would do that, of course. And on the other hand, there's very sophisticated algorithms for doing this across subject matter that certain companies um, out there offer as platforms. And I'm curious if you've had experience either with those platforms or with building some of that tech into your own games or into your in-house libraries. My experience with that so far has been that uh, the fancier the algorithm is, the less effective it generally is. Um, uh, I think there are some simple things that you can do in that regard that end up making a really big difference. But what I found is when people have these really deep, complicated neural net algorithms that are supposed to do all this and uh, and try and provide that, my experience has been as of yet, the the for all that effort, the the difference it makes ends up sometimes being kind of small. And then the problem you run into is you end up being kind of constrained by the system. You start to say, hey, I've got a creative idea about a different way we can do this. And someone there who's in charge of this big convoluted adaptive learning system says, well, wait, 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 wait. Our system doesn't handle that. So you can't do it that way. So my experience so far hasn't been great that I've I've found them not to be especially effective and that they can be kind of constraining. Um, But when you keep them simple, then I think uh, I've I've seen some good results. But there's still, I think, a lot of room for improvement. That's great to hear. So where's your focus these days? What's on your horizon? Where are you and your team spending your time? Uh, So we have a, a, we definitely have a mix of things. And that's always been part of the strategy for our studio is to kind of have a diverse portfolio so that uh, as the market shifts around, we can shift around with it. But uh, some of the, some of the things that are kind of hot for us, definitely uh, tablets replacing textbooks, we, we see as a, as a big trend. And so we've been getting good at kind of educational games designed for tablets, designed to integrate with classroom experience. Uh, that's been a big one for us. We've been getting into virtual reality. I have a long history with it personally. And uh, now that it's kind of coming to the market, I think it's going to be very, very powerful. So we're doing some development in that space. And then related to that, um, we really like high, physical digital hybrid experiences. We are, we've got this uh, game called Happy Atoms that we're very excited about. It's a actual physical modeling toy that models the way atoms bond into molecules, but then it works with an augmented reality app for your phone or for your tablet that does a visual scan of what the the player has built 
what molecule they built, and then it can identify it, and and that all feeds into the to the game. And similarly, we're doing sort of physical digital museum exhibit hybrids and theme parks. So those are all big trends for us. Uh, do you need beta testers for your molecule game? Uh, you, anyone? Oh, we absolutely do. And if you go to happyatoms.com, you can sign up to be one. Great. I'll make sure to share that on the uh, webpage along with this podcast. Great. And where can folks go if they want to know more about you and get your book and just learn more? Yeah, the easiest thing is go to jessieshell.com. And uh, my information, information about Shell Games, et cetera, all of that is there. Great. So just a couple more quick questions. One is, if you had a superpower as a game designer, what is your superpower? What's your sweet spot, the thing that you most just dearly love to do? Oh, boy, oh, boy. What do I dearly love to do the most? Boy, that's tough because I like so many things. Yes, you um, do. <laughs> um, well, let I me think- say, where do you where do you feel like you're really like awesome at adding value? Right on a team. That's another way to answer to ask the question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I I, I follow you. Um, uh, so I feel like I'm pretty good at seeing experiences in my head, um, being able to kind of get ahead of things, and. Um, the, the the thing I actively and I I guess this is the thing I actively train on this is the the ability to observe my own feelings about a thing that I'm interacting with. Um, uh, I talk about this a bit in my book. Is this, it sounds sort of weird, and I I partly like I do daily meditation, which I find very helpful in this regard because it teaches you to observe your own thought process while it's happening without interrupting it. So you can be a really, really efficient designer if you can interact with a thing and observe yourself interacting with it and observe your feelings and emotions, and then you can look at that and say, well, wait a minute, why was I, I felt frustrated there, or I felt, I felt a lack of, of, uh, of interest there, or I, or I felt overwhelmed there, and then why was that? Um, that... That seems to be a thing I'm pretty, I'm pretty good at, and I love uh, doing. Um, absolutely, and of course, and the other thing, of course, that I've had to get good at in the in more recent years is sort of team building and team maintenance. Um, that's I've been slower to get good at that, but but the, but lately that seems to be uh, where I end up having to spend a lot of my time, and I'm uh, and seems like it's going pretty well. Oh, that's great to hear. What uh, internal tools do your teams use for communication? Do you use Slack or HipChat or Good question. Atlassian? One of, one, of, one of our big beliefs is that we want teams to be able to choose their own tools. We don't like mandated tools. Um, so we kind of, different teams offer best practices. Um, certainly wise use of email is, is very important. Some groups are experimenting with Slack. Since Agile is really important for us, different teams are using different things to keep track of burndown charts and keep track of schedules. 
We've tried a number of different tools, but it seems like a lot of our teams are finding Jira in the long run ends up being their, uh, their preferred uh, tool uh, for, for kind of project tracking. Um, but really, we, we use a wide variety, and it, it depends, right? If you're working with outside clients, sometimes that changes the tools um, you, you want to use. Uh, bigger projects want to use different tools than smaller projects. But mostly, we keep it fairly simple. And one of the, but I'll tell you a very simple thing that we do. We make sure everybody sits next to each other. We do six to eight projects at a time. And every time a new project starts, desks are moved so that the people working on something are all right next to each other. Because that face-to-face -face communication is the most important communication. Thank you so much for your time and for sharing your perspective and wisdom, Jesse. Sure thing. Great talking to you. Great talking to you. Thanks for listening to Getting to Alpha with Amy Jo Kim. The shows that help you innovate faster and smarter. Be sure to check out our website, gettingtoalpha.com. That's getting2alpha.com for more great resources and podcast episodes.